Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Sunday, May 29th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in. Uh, once again, uh, to yet another edition of our program. Uh, later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. And, uh, of course, this is the second uh, part of our African Liberation Weekend uh, programming. Uh, the program uh, features our Pan-African Newswire report with dispatches on announced sanctions by the Democratic Republic of Congo government against neighboring Rwanda uh, over the status of rebel attacks in the east of the country. A Sudanese woman has been chosen uh, for a human rights award uh, based upon her activism in the pro-democracy movement. So we'll have details on that story as well. The Malawian currency, the Kwacha, has decreased 25% in value in recent weeks. And the African Union Summit discussed the crisis in food security on the continent. In the second hour, we look back on the lifetimes and contributions of Congolese revolutionary leader, Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba, and the circumstances surrounding his assassination, uh, being a great proponent of Pan-Africanism, African liberation. In addition, uh, we examine the unanswered questions surrounding the death of former United Nations Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld, who died in the aftermath of the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, ostensibly in um, that part of Africa, uh, he died in northern Rhodesia to investigate uh, the circumstances surrounding Lumumba's assassination as well as reaching some type of peace settlement within uh, the then uh, Republic of Congo. In a mysterious, uh, he died in a mysterious uh, airline crash. Finally, we feature an archived audio report, Failed Bay of Pigs Invasion in Cuba during April of 1961. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program, stay tuned. Right now, we'll feature one of the luminaries uh, within uh, Pan-African music, uh, Dr. Nico Kassanda and the African Fiesta Orchestra, a compilation of their songs. Let's listen in. <laughs> Ah, 
Yeba, o sali moziki, ya fiesta ngo to zala, ngona koma serie. Tumba mama, to yeba na kinga na yo na lubumba shiki, no lelo yo to zali kakana yo. Mwasi alipanso na linga kina, la fina nga ya bo mwana, ne zali kakayo. Nakoma kobela maladi, obe bo kanisa, ese kelina yo. Nakanisi otalaki, nasando na lukumbashi, oyaki mobembo. Basiba proklameyo, balopiyo mamaleki, ya yesu. Mama tango ya kamiziki e yembeli nanga e bongwa naka Tumba ya ba solo mama ngoto zala ngona kumba siliye Tumba ya ba otali moziki ya piyata ngoto zala ngona kumba siliye
And uh, that was uh, the music of uh, Dr. Nico Kathanda from uh, African uh, Fiesta, uh, music um, from uh, the late 1950s through the 1960s. We'll have to look that up, but uh, from the sound and, uh, of course, uh, the recognizable melodies and rhythms, uh, one of the uh, legendary uh, classic uh, architects of uh, modern African, Pan-African, Congolese uh, music, uh, Dr. Nico Kassanda. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, today is Sunday, uh, May 29th, uh, 2022. And uh, this is the second part of our African Liberation Weekend, commemorating the 59th anniversary of the founding of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor to today's African Union, uh, formed in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, on May 25th of 1963. And of course, uh, Dr. Nico Cassandra was part uh, on a cultural level and political as well of that whole process taking place uh, during uh, the late 1950s through the 1960s. Uh, right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines uh, in today's Pan-African Newswire. There was, of course, uh, a decision uh, by the Democratic Republic of Congo government to cut ties with neighboring Rwanda. Uh, this announcement has elicited mixed reactions. Kinshasa on Friday halted all Rwandan air flights from the country, alleging that Kigali's involvement in supporting the M23 rebel group in the eastern parts of the vast nation. Rwanda Defense Force later said, Two soldiers had been kidnapped on patrol and were being held by the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda, the FDLR, another rebel group active in the Democratic Republic of Congo's eastern region. As our country has taken the decision to suspend Rwandan air flights, I think if other countries would take the same measures, Rwanda will understand that its game is known by all states and that it is now time for it to stop and for us all to give peace a chance, I said Josue Kabanza, a resident of Goma in the east of the country. Although it is late, the measures taken by the Congolese government are to be encouraged, but it is not enough. We need to go further than that, said Esquidor Ngaluki, a human rights activist. Kinshasa has regularly accused Rwanda of carrying out incursions into its territory and of backing armed groups in the eastern part of the country. In the Republic of Sudan, uh, the Sudanese women's activist Amira Usman Hamed has won a Frontline Defenders Award for Human Rights Defenders at Risk, the organization announced on Friday. Ms. Hamed, an engineer in her 40s uh, who has been a longtime activist for women's rights in Sudan, was first arrested in 2002 for wearing trousers and again in 2013 for refusing to cover her hair. At the time, a law prohibited women in Sudan from uncovering their hair or wearing trousers in public. This law, which turned Sudanese women from victims into criminals, according to Ms. Ahmed, was finally repealed in 2019 after the army removed President Omar al-Bashir. 
More recently, Ms. Hamed was arrested in January this year before being released a week later for speaking out against military rule after General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan's push in October of 2021. Relatives of Ms. Hamed uh, told the international press at the end of January that 30 armed and masked men broke into her house in Khartoum, the capital, in the middle of the night and took her to an unknown destination. Mira Usman Hamed never turned away from her mission and continued to actively participate in peaceful demonstrations, said in a statement by the NGO Frontline Defenders, which awarded the activists. The scheme was awarded Human Rights Defender since 2005. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the southern African state of Malawi on Thursday, uh, the country announced a 25% devaluation of its national currency, the Kwacha, in a bid to shore up dwindling foreign exchange reserves and curb inflation. The declaration was made as the government launched recovery packages, talks uh, with uh, the International Monetary Fund. The devaluation, the biggest in a decade, will take effect from Friday, the Central Bank of Malawi said. The last evaluation of the Kwacha uh, by one-third took place in 2012, a decade ago. For six months, Malawi has seen its foreign currency reserves shrink sharply uh, due to, according to the central bank, a drop in export revenues due to the COVID pandemic and a rise in the cost of imports, particularly raw materials due to the war in Ukraine. Uh, The country was also hit by two devastating cyclones uh, this year. The supply-demand imbalance has manifested in the domestic foreign exchange market in a number of ways, including low foreign exchange supply and declining official foreign reserves, the bank said. Finance Minister Sosten Wanye told AFP the government had planned the devaluation move sometimes back. Uh, we had to do this, he said. The central bank was struggling because of the overvalued Kwacha. Malawi's inflation for April hit 15.7% triggered by a rise in food and non-food prices. Finally, coups, uh, terrorism, and food security featured high on the agenda of an African Union summit that uh, took place uh, earlier this weekend. Heads of state uh, from across the continent, including President Cyril Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa, have gathered uh, in Malambo in Equatorial Guinea for the 16th Extraordinary Summit the summit aimed to assessing the persistent threats, evaluate current response mechanisms, and decide on the specific actions and measures for protection of terrorism victims. Ramaphosa shared his submissions about the South African government's suggestions of ways to fight terrorism and displacement as well as refugees. It comes at a time where hundreds of families in KwaZulu-Natal and some in the Eastern Cape are homeless and living in town halls after the recent flood left a trail of disaster in the two provinces. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches 
the numerous newspapers, the magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, uh, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for African Liberation Weekend, uh, all you have to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And, of course, uh, we are here uh, every week uh, bringing you some of the most important and breaking stories and historical perspectives uh, related uh, to the entire uh, African world and the, the international community in general, indeed. And uh, this is uh, African Liberation Weekend, and of course, uh, we're commemorating the 59th anniversary of the founding of the Organization of African Unity. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
sound of the Marvelettes and Danger Heartbreak Straight Ahead, uh, the Marvelettes uh, from Inkster, Michigan, uh, suburb uh, about 16 miles west of Detroit. And, of course, uh, the Marvelettes uh, were the first uh, mega group uh, for uh, Motown Records uh, in 1961 um, with their hit records, uh, Mr. Postman, of course, that's one there. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. This is African Liberation Weekend. Uh, This is the second installment uh, of our three-part series. And uh, today we're going to look at the circumstances surrounding uh, the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, the first uh, legitimate uh, elected uh, prime minister of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, Lumumba uh, was, of course, a charismatic leader. He was a pan-Africanist, anti-imperialist, and, of course, uh, he was overthrown uh, by uh, the imperialist system, uh, including the United States, playing a leading role, the former Belgian colonialists, uh, elements that were dominant at the time within the United Nations. So let's listen uh, to uh, this audio file, uh, rare audio file, on uh, the assassination of uh, Patrice uh, Lumumba. <laughs> personality. Here I have what's left of a very important historical figure. He had very good teeth. They're covered in gold at the back. Patrice Lumumba murdered 40 years ago. One man who must know is the Belgian colonial official and diplomat Jacques Brassine. He was dangerous for us in the sense that he wasn't open to the kind of solutions we sometimes wanted to apply. Another man who played a central role in the fall of the Congolese politician was Louis Malière, a colonel in the Belgian Secret Service. Lumumba chose the wrong side. Of course, he was more or less a communist, and he chose the Russian side rather than the West. Virginia, USA. This is where CIA agent Larry Devlin lives. He was the man the American government entrusted with the murder of Lumumba. Lumumba was a danger for both the Congo and the rest of the world. Lumumba's house in Kinshasa, or Leopoldville as it was known then. In 1960, when the Congo became independent, it was for a few months at the center stage of world politics. Patrice Lumumba, the country's first prime minister. The masses who are waiting for us tomorrow want more than just the votes they have obtained today. They want bread 
and progress. We need to be able to build this nation. There were headlines throughout the entire summer. 200 days later, the show was over. Roland, Lumumba's youngest son, was not even three years old when he saw his father for the last time. We must know exactly who did it, how and why. We have the right to know. It's our duty to pass this knowledge on to the future generations, to our children and the children of our children. Lumumba's typewriter, a souvenir from the only friend he had in Belgium, Jean Van Lied, a rebellious Christian and anti-colonialist. He tried in vain to act as an intermediary between Lumumba and the Belgian government. Patrice was such a free man and people found it so original to see a black man who didn't lick the feet of the colonialists that they instinctively perceived him as a threat. And it was that freedom of his which turned him into a kind of meteorite flashing through the sky and then he disappeared. The first Europeans to arrive in the Congo called it the Heart of Darkness. In 1955, when King Baudouin visited the country, the colonial order still seemed secure. But millions of Congolese had paid with their lives during the 80 years of Belgian rule. The chance appearance of Patrice Lumumba in the background of an old newsreel. Within five years, this unknown post office worker had become the leader of an unstoppable independence movement. The objective we are pursuing is the liberation of the Congo from the colonial regime and the total emancipation of the country. We are certain that we know exactly where we are going. The independence of the Congo doesn't mean driving the Belgians out or breaking with Belgium. Quite the opposite. We want to form a sovereign government which will provide a place for everyone in a country where Congolese and Belgians will be able to work hand in hand in the service of the Congolese nation. Lumumba, the Pan-African with his MNC party, won a surprise victory in the first free elections. The Belgians reluctantly handed over the government to him. His closest rival, Kasavubu, became president of the young independent states. We are honored to present to the parliament of the Congo the first Congolese government as follows. Prime Minister and Minister of Defense, your humble servant, Lumumba. The first clash came at the independence celebrations. Gentlemen, the independence of the Congo is the crowning moment of the mission conceived by the genius of King Leopold II, undertaken by him with courageous tenacity and pursued with great perseverance by Belgium. King Baudouin made a speech in which he exalted the role of Belgium, talking about everything Belgium had brought to the Congo. He said we had arrived at a moment 
when Belgium had decided to grant the Congo its independence, and that this was well and good. I would say it was a classic speech for such circumstances. Kazavubu made a speech thanking King Baudouin. He talked about the Congo and the future. It was a good speech, too. Lumumba hadn't been scheduled to speak. The whole international press was there. Suddenly he got up, walked to the tribune, and made a speech. Lumumba's speech came as a shock. Nobody was expecting it, and it shocked lots of Belgians. He systematically condemned Belgian colonization. He repeated all the harshest anti-colonial accusations. We'd cut off people's hands, we'd enslaved them, and all that sort of thing. You who have fought for independence and are today victorious, I salute you in the name of the Congolese government. I salute all my friends who fought relentlessly at our sides. We have been subjected to insults and sarcasms, to the blows we had to endure from morning to night just because we were Africans. We learned that the law was never the same according to whether it was applied to whites or blacks. Who will ever forget the shootings or the barbarous jail cells awaiting those who refuse to submit to this regime of injustice, oppression and exploitation? That was really the decisive moment when he made that famous speech on the 30th of June 1960. A lot of people then said he signed his death warrant with that speech because the Belgian government didn't want him. Not just because of the 30th of June speech, but because he was Patrice Lumumba and he didn't fit in with the hopes of the Belgians and Americans and many people in business. Only five days after the founding of the new state, a revolt broke out in the army. The black troops rebelled against their Belgian officers who had no intention of abandoning their command. Crisis in the Congo took over the headlines in the world's press. In this wagon was the Italian consul in Leopoldville ermordet. The Italian consul in Leopoldville was murdered in this car. Terror and destruction are now the features of a freedom which many believe to be premature. Whites are fleeing mobs who have been whipped up to anger. The Belgian government is sending paratroops into the Congo. In the copper-rich province of Katanga, Lumumba's opponent, Chombi, called on the Belgians for help too, in order to disarm the troops. Less than ten days after their withdrawal, colonial soldiers triumphantly returned to the former colony. René Small went to Katanga as an officer in the military secret service. If it hadn't been for the courage of that small number of Belgian officers and NCOs, 
in containing the blacks and preventing them from overrunning the town, then it would have been horrible. The Elizabethville mutiny was over in 24 hours thanks to the Belgians. The rebellion started on July 9th and lasted till the 10th. It was on the 11th at 5 p.m. that we declared independence. This was the Katangan secession. Chombi, known locally as Mr. Cash Register, declared himself president of the separatist province. But he was a president installed by the Belgians. Elizabethville was above all a center for important financial interests. That was where the Union Minière, the mining company was. Obviously, Belgian financial circles also wanted to keep their hands on that. One of the major figures in the breakaway state was the Minister of Finance, Jean-Baptiste Kibwe. As soon as we took over, the mining company, L'Union Minière, continued to export copper and the revenue from this went into the Katanga National Bank. Chombi's chief aide was a Belgian lawyer, Jacques Bartelous. The mining company now paid its taxes and license fees to the Katangan government, not to Leopoldville. So the Katangans had plenty of money, and this enabled them to equip the Katangan gendarmes and buy weapons and armored vehicles. There were arms merchants continually visiting Chombi's home to try and sell him arms. Chombi's white mercenaries defending the free world in the heart of Africa soon became known as les affreux, literally the dreadful men. There was anger and disappointment at the breakaway in the Congolese capital, Leopoldville. The flag over the Belgian embassy was hauled down and the ambassador of the former colonial power sent home. The plot was already and the plans prepared. They intend to impose a government against the wishes of the people. Belgium wants to balkanize this country, to break up the Congo. Lumumba asked that American troops come in to replace the Belgians and throw the Belgians out. Uh, they talked to Ambassador Timberlake, who realized that if American troops came in, almost certainly then Russian troops would come in. So Timberlake then recommended that instead of asking the United States that they ask the United Nations to send uh, troops to, to uh, resolve the situation. At the request of the Congolese government, the UN has decided to replace Belgian troops with United Nations forces. In this way, the US representative Cabot Lodge has opposed Soviet attempts to make propaganda capital out of the Congo crisis. This was a contrick on a big scale. American planes were hastily resprayed and flew the blue helmets into the Congo. Lumumba and his government had called for UN troops in order to end the Katanga secession. But when they arrived, they took no action against Chombi and the separatists. The Indian general, Rikia, went to the Congo as military advisor to UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld. Unfortunately, 
Mr. Lubumba and uh, Mr. Kasu Ubu, or for that matter, any other Congolese leader, which uh, belonged to one side or the other, their, their impression was totally wrong of how they were to use the UN. They expected the United Nations to behave as a big power like the United States does when it goes out to help a country. Mm. That they use force to help a country, they provide arms, equipment, intelligence. As the population celebrated the arrival of UN troops in the Congo, the Soviet Prime Minister Nikita Khrushchev was holding out prospects of help from the Red Army for the Lumumba government. Lumumba tried to use the Soviet embassy as a means of exerting pressure on the Americans. Without any official invitation, he traveled to the USA and asked for support against the Belgian intervention. But the Jungle Premier, as he was pejoratively called, wasn't even received by the President. I wish to convey to the entire American people a message of friendship from the Congolese people, who have great faith in you. We want you to understand us and help us. And we want you to know that when your technicians and teachers come to our country, you will find in the Congolese people friends and brothers. African leaders were new to us. A man such as Lumumba did not have the sophistication or the polish, if you will, of the normal German or French or Belgian, English, what have you, diplomat. Uh, he tended to say things very bluntly, and which upset, uh, I think, the Western nations. The international success of the Katanga secession led to the breakaway of another province. The diamond-producing region of South Kasai withdrew from the central government. Lumumba decided to stop the disintegration of the Congolese state without the help of the West. The major problem for any offensive was how to transport his troops to a front 1,000 kilometers away. Since we were not giving him the aircraft, he managed to get some aircraft from the Russians. This military operation was relatively successful, but Lumumba had signed his own death sentence a second time. Now it was the Americans who wanted rid of him. The United States deplores the unilateral action of the Soviet Union in supplying aircraft and other equipment for military purposes to the Congo, thereby aggravating an already serious situation which finds Africans killing other Africans. I had a little man at the airport, and if a white person got off a Soviet aircraft, he was considered Russian. Now, he could have been Czech, he could have been Bulgarian, because they had some Bulgarians and some Czechs there. But more likely, he was a... And the man would go, one, two, three, four, cross. One, two, three, four, cross. And at the end of the day, we would count these figures. So it was an approximation when I say a 1,000. But they came in, and we were afraid that they would slowly take over the, po the levers of power. Were you in contact with the Americans? Yes, my contact was Larry Devlin. We got on very well and we did some things together. 
But I think the Americans wanted to liquidate Lumumba. Oh yes, Colonel Malier was uh, in the defense section. With uh, He was a highly respected officer. Uh, he somehow understood Congolese probably better than 98% of his colleagues and certainly better than I did. One day it was agreed with our people that we would put listening devices in the Mumba's office. The Americans provided the equipment and the Belgians installed it. We intercepted all of Lumumba's telephone conversations. The big difficulty was that he often spoke in Tetela, and we had to have a translator. That was the biggest difficulty. Was this useful? We knew in general what he was saying and what he was doing. Through a series of press conferences, Lumumba tried in vain to win over world public opinion. He exposed the foreign intervention which was attempting to undermine the new independent Congo, but the press branded him as a threat to world interests and set about the assassination of his character. Reports from the German correspondent Peter Scholl-Latour were typical of the style used in the Western press. Is it his Mephistopheles beard? Or those eyes rolling like billiard balls behind his spectacle lenses? There's something terrifying about this man. He has the head of an African Lenin. Lumumba's daughter, Juliana, was present at many of the press conferences. I was with my father all the time. Often I was the only person allowed to be with him when he was working on his speeches. So I'd sit down quietly and just be with Dad. In the Belgian press, he was shown as Satan, with horns and everything, the archetypal communist. And all this just because he said things which corresponded to the aspirations of the majority of the people, but which were absolutely not part of the mindset or the objectives of the colonial power at the time. He wanted the black people, the Congolese people, first and foremost, to be worthy of their own culture. He had faith in them. We want to be independent, he said, but on terms of equality and respect. I think that's why people always said he was intransigent. Are you a communist, Mr. Lumumba? It always makes me laugh when I'm asked that question. I'm not a communist at all. You know, I've often been presented as a communist, as anti-white, anti-Belgian, as someone destructive. Absolutely not. I'm simply a nationalist leader fighting for an ideal. I'm not a communist at all. I never will be. American agent Larry Devlin received $100,000 from the CIA along with instructions to make the elimination of Lumumba the priority goal of his covert action. Yes, I received a cable that uh, someone whom I would, a senior officer that I would know by sight, would arrive and give me specific instructions. Uh, and that, that was very surprising because... Why were they sending someone there to give me instructions when they could send them by cable? I had no idea what the instructions would be. In Belgian Secret Service telegrams, there was talk of a mysterious Operation Barracuda, 
and of the imminent arrival of two children. I must say quite sincerely that I have no recollection of the code name Barracuda at all. And the two children, what was that? The two children, no. Yes, yes, I remember now. They sent two people, an aide and Major Lutz. They sent both of them, yes it must have been those two, to talk to me about the Lumumba affair and they were in favour of eliminating him. I remember being totally surprised when he instructed me that they wanted to get rid of Lumumba. I, I, I'd never heard of, our, of the agency being involved in such a thing before. They wanted to send me a crocodile killer to get rid of Lumumba. That's what they came to propose. The substance to eliminate Lumumba was toothpaste that was poisoned, which would result in a illness very similar to polio or something like that, as I remember. I never opposed it. I always let them get on with things. But I let the Congolese do it. I think there were lots of people who preferred him out of the way for good. It's been denied that President Eisenhower issued such instructions. I have no idea whether he did or did not. At the time, I assumed that he had. And I, I, I have a feeling that Something must have been said that was either he ordered it or he was misunderstood. But certainly, I under I believed it at the time that it was a presidential order. The red flag came down when the Congolese army in Leopoldville overthrew the ultra-nationalist Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba and expelled Moscow's diplomatic representative from the country. With Soviet documents, fly sheets and propaganda brochures burned, communist intrigues against the United Nations in the Congo have for the time being been stopped. A 30-year-old colonel, Desiree Mobutu, has become the new strongman of this young republic with the support of the majority of the Congolese army. Mobutu had in fact been a trusted ally of Lumumba, who had appointed him head of the army only a few weeks earlier. He now declared he had deposed the prime minister. The officer who led the putsch was in fact the West's secret weapon against Lumumba. One of his most influential advisors was the Belgian counter-espionage officer, Colonel Malière. Mobutu was pro-Western, that's for sure. But apart from that, he was also manipulated by the Americans. He was interested in dealing with the United States and having American support. And I was the, the person with whom he worked. Mobutu's putsch was the prelude to a dictatorship lasting more than 30 years, from which the country has never recovered. But Mobutu didn't do it on his own. He was helped. They came to take this country's wealth. They came to get contracts with him so they could fill their pockets and to get bigger and bigger royalties. They supported him for more than 30 years. The Americans, the Belgians, the French and the big international companies. They didn't come to develop the country. They came to make a profit.
and they made huge profits. Roberto's move against Lumumba was not only supported by Western Secret Services, but also by the United Nations. It was a million dollars, roughly, uh, which was UN money, which was used to pay the troops. Using troops paid by foreign powers, Mobutu put Lumumba under house arrest. UN forces also surrounded the residence of the deposed Prime Minister to protect him, but also to eliminate him politically. Lumumba broke the siege and tried to take his family on the 2,000-kilometer drive to Stanleyville, where a pro-Lumumba counter-government had been formed. But his very popularity was to become his undoing. We understood it was to be like a normal official trip. So we mobilized the population in the usual way. He made a speech in every village. Even in those villages which didn't support him, he would make speeches. He was caught in a trap of his own making. He wanted to win people over and he was quite capable of doing so. But this dragged out the journey and they were able to catch up with him and put him in prison. Late in the evening of the 1st of December 1960, Lumumba crossed the Sankuru River by boat and appeared to have reached safety. But the ferryboat bringing his family also brought his pursuers. At the last moment, Lumumba managed to escape by driving to a UN position. The UN troops from Ghana had always been on his side, but this time the door stayed shut. Any intervention on behalf of the fugitive had been explicitly forbidden by headquarters. We had only agreed to provide him protection in the house. If he wanted to go out, then he had to tell us he's going out, where he's going, how he's going, then we would have to decide how we are going to protect him. Two days later, at Leopoldville Airport. Mobutu had told the international press to come to the airport. Photographers and camera crews from the West were to witness the abuse and humiliation of the great Lumumba. We took him to Taisville, where he was guarded by Bobozo. And then one day we said he was trying to escape, and that's when Nendaka took things in hand to get him sent somewhere else. Victor Nendaka had once been a close friend of Lumumba's, his representative at the head of the party. Now he became Mobutu's security chief, responsible for capturing his former party comrades. On the 13th of January, there was what you would call a mutiny at the military camp. The army was divided. There were pro-Lumumba and anti-Lumumba factions. 
General Barboza said to Mobutu, I can't guarantee his security anymore. You'll have to take him off my hands. Put him wherever you like, but he must leave this camp because I can no longer vouch for the troops stationed in Fizville. We alerted everyone we could and said, be careful, he's quite capable of coming back to Leopoldville with the tanks from Tisville, because he was capable of stirring up the troops and getting them behind him. Everyone was given their assignment. Mine was to go to Tisville, get the prisoners, and from there, take them to Moanda. It was only when we were in the plane that Lumumba realized what was really going on. Two of Lumumba's close political allies were also on board. Ministers Mapolo and Okito, who were also to share his fate. I wasn't interested. I washed my hands of it. And that was that. The destination of this carefully planned trip was Katanga, where Lumumba's deadly enemy was waiting for him. I was told to ask Chombe if he would take delivery of the parcel. Malia used the Belgian Secret Service's radio connections for his secret message. But who did he speak to? Commander Fedict. He was the one who answered. The first message, which I received at the end of the morning, was a message which had clearly come from Colonel Malia, saying, request agreement from the Jew to receive Satan. Yes, those were code words. We didn't speak openly. The Jew in my coded language was Chombe. And Satan for Lumumba. And let me point out that these code words were chosen by Colonel Malier and not by myself. For us, Lumumba was Satan. And he did look satanical. You just have to look at those eyes. And Chombe was the Jew. Why? Mr. Cash Register. <laughs> Even the government in Brussels sent a telegram requesting that Chombi take charge of the prisoners. So the aircraft landed at Katanga's airport. We were there when Lumumba and the two others got off the plane. And it wasn't a pleasant sight. They put the three of them in a jeep and that was when I realized it was Lumumba, who I had already seen before independence. They had shaved his beard off. He was tied up and all that. There were three of them. They struck me, Lumumba anyway, as very dignified, or shall we say, fatalistic. It's difficult to describe. They were being propped up, but they seemed very tired. The airfield was occupied by Swedish UN troops. They were there and saw the whole business. The Swedish unit was in the control tower. One of them, Sergeant Kelgren, made a very brief report describing the arrival of the prisoners. Yes, we did have a report on his arrival and immediately report instructions were given that we, you must watch him, you must insist that uh, he, no bodily harm is done. The prisoners were taken to an empty private house belonging to a Belgian settler not far from the airport. 
It was here at the Villa Brouet that they were guarded by military police under Belgian command. There were many witnesses to the events which followed. I saw several members of the Katanga government, including the Interior Minister, Mr. Munongo, who looked Lumumba over from head to foot and back again, and then spat on the ground. When I saw that, I said to myself, Lumumba has got his death sentence. After the visit from the Interior Minister, Manongo, we were ordered to shoot at the UN troops if they came. And if we couldn't prevent them getting in, we were to kill Lumumba. Didn't you feel any pity for him? Why should I? I have no pity for him. He insulted our king. Didn't it upset you a bit? Upset? A man's death doesn't leave you indifferent, but upset? No. No. I said to Chumbe, his fate is sealed. Lumumba's fate is sealed. It's as sealed as if he was already dead. I'm sure of that. And in that case, they may as well execute him at Bakwanga as at Elizabethville. But there he was in the hands of the blacks. They were in the hands of the black government. So the discussion was not about whether to save Lumumba. The only discussion was about where to kill him. Yes. To put it in plain words, that was the issue. They wanted to kill them all. They said, if we don't kill him, we'll have more trouble. It was Munongo and Kibwe, the hardliners in the Katanga government, whose point of view won the day. And their line was, Lumumba's arrival in Katanga means he must be put to death. The government met and decided Lumumba would be killed. They had a lot to drink during that cabinet meeting, and they had a lot more to drink afterwards. They took them to the presidency, to Chombe's residence. It was already evening, about 8 o'clock, 8.30, and from the presidency they went to the place where they were executed. And this is where the execution took place. They stood the condemned man up against that tree. Why didn't the Belgian officers refuse to take part? Now oh, that's a good question. The Belgian officers were on detachment to Katanga. They carried out the orders they received from the authorities they had been seconded to. We dug a hole and we put them in front of it. We shot them and they fell into the hole. This is the tree they were stood up against. And here are the famous bullet holes. Here you can see them a bit better. The bullets, of course, went right through their bodies before lodging themselves in this tree. For me, the business with Lumumba started the morning after the execution. The man in charge, the Belgian, 
called me into his office and said, okay, are you going to take care of this? And I said, all right, but what do I have to do? But the Katangans denied he was dead. They denied everything. It was absolutely crazy. We cut the bodies up into pieces. They were buried twice. We cut them up into pieces. We burned them. But we also had huge quantities of acid. Like you have in car batteries. So most of each body was dissolved. And then the rest, we burned them. But we had to do all this without the black scene. In the middle of the forest. That was a problem too. There were two of us, just the two. And we had to do all that on our own. Get the three bodies out of the ground. Cut them into pieces and destroy them. And nobody was to know about it. And nobody did. Nobody knew what happened. Well, there were all kinds of stories about Lumumba's death. He was supposed to have escaped, stolen a car, been killed by some villagers who recognized him. But nobody believed any of that for a second. Even the Belgian Minister for Africa, one of those pulling the strings behind the scenes, contributed to the cover-up with false telegrams. I went there the next day. As soon as I arrived at the airport, I was told he was dead. I wonder how you reacted to this news. What was your reaction? Oh, I said, good riddance. What else would you expect me to say? For you, it was the kind of solution of all problems? Yes. He was happy. Happy, not, not perhaps the word. You, you're busy. <laughs> Here's one problem gone. Now what's the next problem? Three weeks later, the story was Lumumba and his accomplices massacred by villagers. Just one of countless lies. The whole truth only came to light ten years later. None of the murderers or the men behind them has ever been indicted. Lumumba wrote a last letter from prison. I often remember a sentence from that letter which said, to my children whom I'm leaving. To my children who I'll never see again, I'd like to say Congo has a magnificent future. Tell them the future of Congo will be magnificent and that he expects them, as he expects of every Congolese, to do their sacred duty. There are even people who believe he will return. Now he'll have to come back with two front teeth missing. You're Europeans. I think this image, and I'm not Jewish, I'm black, recalls the Holocaust. Their bodies were burned. Their body fat was used as fertilizer. Their gold teeth were taken as war booty. And that's called a crime against humanity.
It's as simple as that. of Patrice Lumumba, uh, the first uh, legitimately uh, elected uh, Prime Minister of Congo, uh, who was assassinated at the aegis of the Central Intelligence Agency, the Belgian authorities, and others uh, as part of the imperialist and neo-colonialist uh, networks in operation in Africa at that time. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program.
the Motown sound, uh, Detroit's own four tops with uh, you keep running away. And, of course, we're here at the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. And right now we want to continue uh, with the overall Congo crisis uh, in the 1960s. We're going to listen to a lecture delivered many years later about the mysterious death of Dag Hammarskjöld, uh, the United Nations Secretary General. During the uh, 1960s, uh, let's listen in. Well, I'm very grateful to David for inviting me to come here this evening. Just over 50 years ago, on 18th September 1961, UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld and his entourage died in a plane crash on a mission to try to bring, to bring peace to the Congo. They had flown from Leopoldville, now Kinshasa, to the town of Indola in what was then the British colonial territory of northern Rhodesia and is now Zambia. Hammarskjöld was expecting to meet for talks at Indola Airport with Moy Shombi, the self-styled president of Katanga in the south of Congo, which had seceded illegally just 11 days after the independence of the Congo in 1960. The UN plane reached the airport and obtained clearance to land but it did not get to the airport. It crashed, apparently between 10 and 15 minutes after midnight. All 16 passengers and crew from Sweden, Ireland, the US, Haiti and Canada were to perish. Officially, there was one survivor, but he died a few days later. Here are some photographs of the crash site recently sent from Australia, taken by a northern Rhodesian policeman. As far as I know, they are the only colour photographs of the wreckage that exist. Here you can see the UN crest at the front, which had just been painted on, in fact. Cyril Adula, who was then Prime Minister of the Congo, had welcomed Hammarskjöld when he arrived at Leopoldville Airport, just a week before the Secretary-General's death. Here you can see the Mason Greek exercise. Adula was shocked by news of the crash. As far as he was concerned, Hammarskjöld had, quote, fallen victim to the shameless intrigues of the great financial powers of the West and had been murdered. How ignoble is this assassination? Not the first of its kind perpetrated by the moneyed powers, he said bitterly. Mr. Hammarskjöld was the victim of certain financial circles for whom a human life is not equal to a gram of copper or uranium. Nehru, the Prime Minister of India, with whom Hammarskjöld had a strong relationship, said he did not know whether this was due to accident or some kind of sabotage. There was widespread suspicion that Britain had been critical of the UN mission in the Congo and had backed Katanga's secession, so accusing fingers were pointed in London's direction too. Never even during Suez have Britain's hands been so bloodstained as they are now, wrote Joshua and Como a freedom fighter in southern Rhodesia. Britain is outdoing herself in hypocrisy, observed the Bombay Free Press Journal. <coughs> Hammarskjöld's death was no accident. However, it was a different story among the white settler communities of the Congo and the Rhodesian Federation. Stura Linaire, the Swedish UN representative in the Congo at the time, told me that immediately after news of, his death, of Hammarskjöld's death had been made known, Linnaire received invitations from Belgians in Leopoldville to celebration parties. Well, 
The circumstances surrounding Hammerschelt's death are given a narrative thread in my book, the one that David was showing. By, by giving, they give a narrative thread by telling the story of how I carried out my research. That's not possible here in a talk of less than an hour, but I do want to give a sense of those circumstances. To do so in a way that is not too discursive, I will give a loose focus to the town and airport of Indola, a very interesting place in its own right. It was a centre for slave trading centuries ago, which is remembered in Indola's coat of arms. In the long years of colonial rule by Britain, it became an important centre for the mining of copper and other minerals. And since 1961, it has been important to Zambians as the place where Dag Hammarskjöld was killed in a plane crash. The memorial site, the memorial site is a national monument and known locally as Sweden. To get there, you drive from the town to an avenue that has been planted with Swedish pine trees. Then you pass through dry scrubs near the Dag Hammarskjöld Living Memorial School to reach the site. There's a mound of stones at the centre of the area where the plane crashed surrounded by a green lawn and an outer circle of shrubs and trees. There are some steps to the top of a large anthill against which the body of the Secretary General was said to have been leaning when he was found. Actually, he wasn't, but that's another story. At the top of this anthill, there is a platform from which you can look out over the neighbourhood, including the Congo, only nine kilometres away. Zambians have very great respect for Hammarskjöld, and the memorial site is tended carefully commemorations are held annually <coughs> and here you can see um, Dr. Mumba, then the Vice President of Zambia, coming to pay respects and here you can see the Swedish Ambassador to Zambia, another year coming to pay respects and last year, on the 50th anniversary of uh, Hammarskjöld's death the Swedish Foreign Minister, Carl Bildt um, came to join in the, um, the, mem the um, commemorations Immediately after the crash in 1961, and ever since, a mass of reliable evidence from a range of sources, as well as some unreliable evidence, I should add, um, has, but the reliable evidence has confirmed suspicions about the crash, revealing that a second plane followed Hammerschultz's plane when it reached Indola airspace, attacking it and causing a ball of fire in the sky. After it crashed, about eight miles from the airport, a group of mercenaries <coughs> drove up in jeeps. When they left, the wreck then went up in flames, which destroyed up to 80% of the fuselage. New information has been coming in all the time ever since the book was published. And just five days ago, I heard from a man in South Africa who was driving past on his motorbike after the crash. He went to look at the scene, and he saw bullet holes, a row of bullet holes the size of a fist in a row along the fuselage, hence cannon holes. At that point, the wreckage was still, hadn't been burnt. Almost as soon as he arrived, the men in jeeps rushed up, abruptly made him go away, and shortly after it all went up in flames. The plane did not crash as a result of pilot error, as claimed by a Rhodesian public inquiry of 1961-2, and a 1993 private inquiry for the Swedish government, solely on the basis of elimination. The UN inquiry report of 1962 reached an open verdict. It found that sabotage of some kind could not be excluded but it failed to answer many key questions. This was not entirely the UN Commission's fault. For example, it was not shown suspicious photographs of Dag Hammarskjöld's body, which I found in the Walensky papers at Rose House here in Oxford, and which the Swedish Foreign Ministry have now been forced to admit they have copies of. 
I should like to mention here in passing the importance of these papers at Rose House and my gratitude as well to the archivists at Rose House, Lucy McCann and John Pinfold, for their very great help with my research. Opinions and beliefs about the crash of the plane in which Hammarskjöld and his mission team were travelling have been mired in confusion and mythology. There is an assumption, for example, that Indola Airport was a small primitive airfield in the middle of nowhere. This is exactly what the famous Australian artist, Sidney Nolan and his wife Cynthia believed when they came to visit the site in 1962. When the world was stunned by the news that the head of the UN had been killed in a plane that had crashed near Indola in northern Rhodesia, wrote Cynthia Nolan, one had the impression that Indola was a small village way out in the back of beyond. But when they landed, they were surprised. It was astonishing, wrote Mrs. Nolan, to land on a well-kept international airstrip before a large modern building and be driven into a town of 80,000 inhabitants. Here are two photographs of the airport in the mid-1960s, showing that it had modern standards and was the hub of modern aircraft. In September 1961, in fact, there were 18 Royal Rhodesian Air Force planes parked on its tarmac, and a senior UN official who was at Indola Airport for several days after the crash stated in testimony, which has only just been discovered, that there were many planes arriving and leaving when I was there. There were 30 or 40 fighters, and there were several private planes coming in and taking off. Hammarskjöld may have been assassinated, or he may have been killed in a failed hijacking. This is explored and discussed in my book. But whatever the details, his death <coughs> was the result of sinister intervention. Furthermore, the evidence of foul play that was given at the time was suppressed or belittled by the Rhodesian authorities. Looking at Indola Airport is an instructive way of putting British colonial Africa firmly into our sights this evening. One of the flaws in discussions until now of Hammarskjöld's role in Africa, at least in my view, is that it is nearly always dominated by discussions of the Congo and South Africa, so that Britain and British colonial territories are largely neglected. But this is a mistake. The place where Dark Hammarskjöld perished was one of the centres of a massive drive by whites in sub-Saharan <coughs> Africa to maintain the minority rule in the face of African nationalism. By the early 1960s, white settlers had become desperate to cling on to power. Arguably, the situation could be described as a race war. By 1961, African self-rule was making steady progress southward from the north of the continent. 16 African states joined the UN in 1960, so that Africa itself now provided one quarter of the UN's membership. At the end of the Second World War, European powers had not expected African colonies to be ready for independence for several decades, but it was soon clear that the African nationalist movement was unstoppable. European colonial power across the world was waning, a trend that was highlighted by the transfer of power from Britain to India and Pakistan in 1947. Only ten years after the ending of Imperial India, the British African colony of Ghana became independent. This was highlighted by Macmillan's Wind of Change speech in South Africa in 1960. But this wind was blowing in the wrong direction as far as most white settlers of Central and Southern Africa were concerned. And when Belgium announced in January 1960 its plan for the independence in June of the Belgian Congo, most of the resident <coughs> Belgians and the whites in the region were horrified. It now seemed, as one observer put it, that there was a twisting frontier, the battle line, 
dividing independent black Africa from the southern white redoubt. The white minority set out to establish a barrier against the tide of African nationalism, a kind of wall separating the south from the north of the continent. Over the next 20 years, the whites of the Portuguese and British colonies in the African subcontinent sought to stay in power, and in 1961, the whites of Katanga and the Rhodesian Federation were fighting an aggressive war supported by mercenaries. When Hamashal flew into Katanga, he was flying directly into a centre of the war, and he was perceived by most whites to be on the wrong side. By most blacks, he was seen to be on the side of majority rule and freedom. If Hammerschultz had landed at Indola, he would have found the society as segregated as that of South Africa. Northern Rhodesia was one part of the Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland, which had been specifically set up in 1953 as a way of protecting white rule. The mineral wealth of Northern Rhodesia in the area around Indola being used to maintain the white society centered in Southern Rhodesia. But the Federation fell apart in 1964 with the independence of Zambia and Malawi. The third part of the Federation, Zimbabwe, was another long and very painful story. As mentioned earlier, the mineral-rich province of Katanga in the south of the Congo seceded just 11 days after the independence of the Congo in 1960. The secession had been planned before independence by the European multinationals op operating in the region who were mining a fortune out of the province and into foreign banks. Katanga contained more than 60% of the Congo's entire natural resources and was a major source of the world's minerals. Copper, uranium, tin, manganese, diamonds, and more than 80% of the cobalt that fed Western industry. Moïse Chambi became president, backed by the Belgian government and the British Rhodesias on its southern border. Katanga was propped up by white mercenaries. Oh, I missed that map, sorry. That's, I'll just go back briefly to that map so you can see the border between Katanga in the south of the Congo um, and northern Rhodesia. I'll leave that up. Oh, just, there's Shombi with the mercenaries, and I'll go back to the map. The impact of Katanga's secession on the rest of the nation was disastrous. The Congo had no hope of surviving economically without the wealth of Katanga. In this catastrophic situation, the democratically elected Prime Minister, Patrice Lumumba, turned to the UN for help to remove the Belgian troops from the Congo and to end the secession of Katanga. They had already asked for technical assistance, but now they needed assistance to keep law and order. Hamishal responded immediately. He called for an urgent meeting of representatives of African countries. This was followed two days later by a meeting of the Security Council. After swift deliberations, passed Resolution 143, calling on the Belgian government to withdraw its troops from the territory of the Congo. It also called on the UN to assist the Congo until its own forces were able to cope adequately. Both superpowers, the US and the Soviet Union, voted in favour of the resolution. No country opposed it, though France and the UK abstained. Barely 48 hours later, the first blue helmets arrived in Leopoldville, and ONUC L'Organisation des Nations Unies au Congo was born. Within just two days, the ONUC force numbered 3,500 men who were dispersed all over the Congo, except Katanga. They came from Morocco, Tunisia, Ghana, Ethiopia, Malaysia, Sweden, Norway, and Ireland. Hammerschult had instructed that they should not include troops from the great powers, nor from states that might have special interests in the crisis area. 
site. Here you see Hammarskjöld meeting soldiers of the Indian contingent in Leopoldville in September 1961. When Hammarskjöld was appointed the second UN Secretary General in 1953, the UN had been in existence for just eight years. As its leader, he seemed to, as one person said, restore the soul that had somehow slipped away in the UN's first few years. Under the first Secretary General, Trigby Lee, the UN had been shaken and demoralised by the excesses of American anti-communism and McCarthyism. Now Hammarskjöld was determined to imbue the UN with a new sense of purpose and commitment to the ideals of international service. And not quite four months before his death near Indola, Hammarskjöld visited Oxford to receive an honorary degree. He used the occasion to put forward his concept of an independent international civil service as the keystone of an effective global order. The Secretary General, he argued in his speech, remains under the obligation to carry out the policies as adapted by the UN organs. The essential requirement is that he does this on the basis of his exclusively international responsibility and not in the interest of any particular state or group of states. For him, this was a question of integrity, even if that integrity drove an international civil servant into positions that were in conflict with interested parties. Not everyone approved of this new autonomous importance, autonomous importance for the UN. Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, was suspicious of Hammarskjöld's position of neutrality, which, he said, seemed almost like taking an impartial position between the principles of good and evil. The European colonial powers, notably Britain, France, Belgium and Portugal, were not happy about the growing influence at the UN of the newly independent states. For with the addition of the Congo, the Afro-Asian bloc now provided 47 UN members out of a total of 100, and the West could no longer count upon automatic majorities in the General Assembly. In late 1961, the Earl of Hume, the Britain's Foreign Secretary, commented affably that the UN was now run by the Afro-Asian bloc. These new states were exerting an influence that would have been unheard of only a few years earlier. Here you see Hammarskjöld on the right talking to Nkrumah and Ralph Bunch, Bunch being Hammarskjöld's closest advisor. <coughs> in his introduction to the UN's annual report of 1960, <coughs> Hammarskjöld described the states of Africa and Asia as powerful elements in the international community whose independent voice in the world polity was a factor to be reckoned with. The UN was to them their main platform and protector, he said as they feel themselves strong as members of the international family that are weak in isolation. The support of the newly independent nations for the UN was exemplified at Ndola Airport on the night he was expected to arrive. A large group of Africans had heard on the radio news of the Secretary General's forthcoming arrival and were waiting outside the perimeter of the airport to welcome him as a way of showing their appreciation of his work and his commitment to majority rule. They carried placards stating their opposition to the Rhodesian Federation and to Shombi and their support for a unified Congo. The reason why the group of Africans were waiting outside the airport was that Africans were not allowed inside simply because of the colour of their skin. However, the contradictions in the political world of northern Rhodesia were manifest in the fact that despite this rule, special allowance had to be made on 17th September 1961 for Moy Shombi and his advisers from Katanga so that they could use the airport. One of the people waiting to welcome the Secretary General that night was Mama Chibesa Kankapa, who was an important source for my book. 
Mama Kankasa was a freedom campaigner at the time and later became a government minister in independent Zambia. In 1961, the African nationalist movement in northern Rhodesia had become very active and the political party unit, led by Kenneth Kawunda, who became the first president of independent Zambia, orchestrated a civil disobedience campaign called the Chaka Cha. Its name came from the hit Congolese jazz song of 1960 and the pendant Cha Cha. The disobedience campaign quickly took hold, especially in the Copper Belt, the mining area around Indola, as thousands of people insisted on being served in shops that were whites only. They also burned the Chitupa, the identity pass that the government required them to, to carry. The federal government likened the Chatacha to the Mau Mau movement in Kenya and cracked down severely. By September 1961, when Hammarskjöld died at Indola, about 3,000 members of units were in prison in the Copper Belt. White army units were stationed in the Copper Belt to check the disturbances. Two units of the all-white Northern Rhodesia Territorial Force were on four-hour standby in case of an emergency. So the place was hopping, recalled Saifanger some years later, who was then the regional correspondent for the Guardian. This was the crisis situation into which Hammarskjöld flew. Can you hear me at the back? Is that okay? While conducting research in Indola in 2009, I asked an elderly man in the town centre what it was like to live in Indola in 1961. His response was the first, a quizzical look. Then I asked him if he was at the airport on the night of the crash. Ha! he exclaimed bitterly. Africans were not allowed at the airport terminal. We weren't allowed anywhere where whites were. Whites treated us like dogs, like monkeys, like baboons. It was a time of great injustice. He was not allowed, he added, to enter hotels or bars, nor could he enter shops but had to make purchases through a small window at the side. He gestured to a butcher's over the road, like that shop. It had a small window for Africans. British Africa was run on a racist basis, where the African majority had no vote or state power. They were monopolised by the white minority, which had taken most of the fertile land. Rhodesian society was efficiently organised along racial lines, just like apartheid South Africa. Close to Indola, and right by the airport, was a so-called African township called Twapia, where Mama Kankasa lived in 1961, which conformed to the racial segregation of white-ruled Rhodesia, just like Soweto in South Africa. It was in Twapia that many of the Africans lived who witnessed on the night of the crash that killed Darkhamersholt an attack by a second smaller plane and a fiery explosion in the sky, and their testimony was either rejected or disqualified by the white authorities. Officially, the wreckage of the plane in which Hammarskjöld arrived with his mission team was found at 15.15 local time on 18 September 1961. But in fact, it was cited and reported in the morning, many hours earlier, by Timothy Gerander Kankasa, who was the secretary of Twapia Township in September 1961, and the husband of Mama Kankasa. Mr Kankasa too became a government minister after independence. In 1961, he told the Northern Rhodesian authorities about the burning plane at least six hours before it was officially found. Some local people had come across the burning plane in the morning and rushed over to tell him. He immediately went to the site of the crash and returned to contact the police. Between 9 and 9.30, the men had reported the crash to him rather than to the police because they mistrusted and feared the white authorities. Mr. Kankasa was horrified that nothing was done. There were no police at all, no police, no one from the army, nobody at all until the afternoon, 
It was not until between two and three when at last we heard the sound of the ambulances. For Hammerschultz, racism was against the principles of the UN Charter. In the introduction to his last annual report, he argued that the international community had to follow certain key principles, equal political rights, equal economic opportunities, justice, and the prohibition of the use of armed force. On all four counts, then, the Rhodesian Federation, the place of his death, failed to deliver. Hammerschultz was appalled by South Africa's policy of racial segregation, especially after the Sharpeville massacre of, of March 1960. Apartheid has provoked considerable friction at UN headquarters in New York, where the newly decolonized nations were demanding that South Africa be excluded from the organization. Frank Schroeder, <coughs> the Swedish consul in Leopoldville in 1961, commented some years later that Mr. Hammerschultz's most vituperant opponents were, naturally, those who feared the end of what was unquestionably white supremacy in Africa. When the Secretary General flew to Indola, therefore, he was flying directly into a centre of the race war to which I referred to earlier, to which I referred earlier. In effect, he was flying into enemy territory. And the US air attaché from Leopoldville, who arrived, was astonished by the degree of hatred he found at Indola against the UN on the day after the crash. He wrote in a secret report, Feeling, especially in the Rhodesian army, is very anti-UN. The three UN aircraft which landed there were ordered not to go into town, and guards were placed on the aircraft. A Rhodesian brigadier said, Get those damn aircraft off the field. The Norwegian crew of a UN aircraft that flew to Indola to help search the Hammerschultz plane were made decidedly unwelcome. They were not allowed to enter the airport terminal, not even to get some food, and a guard was placed around their plane until they were told to leave. <coughs> the British state was directly represented, represented at Indola Airport that night by a large number of officials. Chief among them was Lord Elport, the British High Commissioner of the Rhodesian Federation. Elport's behaviour was odd, to say the least. When Hammershaw failed to arrive in his plane, he announced that the Secretary-General must have decided to fly elsewhere, even though the plane had flown over the airport and been given clearance for landing. Elport's behaviour prevented a search for 15 hours so that the plane was not found officially until the middle of the afternoon. Middle of the, afternoon. the known survivor, who was badly burnt and died a few days later, lay suffering for nearly the whole day under the blazing sun. Also at the airport were the senior provincial commissioner based in Indola, the British consul from Elizabethville, and the 8th Marquess of Lansdowne, a UK foreign office minister who had come to the region as a representative of Macmillan. Hammershot's death prevented a peace agreement that might have served the interests of the Congo. Instead, an agreement was reached which served the interests of Katanga and the Belgians. The agreement also served the British. Although they ostensibly supported the UN, their behaviour in Katanga undermined it. <laughs> Macmillan may have spoken eloquently in support of decolonisation when he referred to the wind of change, but he and his government wanted to influence the direction in which that wind was blowing, much like the white settlers referred to earlier. But the British government also wanted to maintain the global power that had been ebbing away with the loss of the empire, and that required a covert challenge to the UN. There was, another British, there was another British official at Zola Airport too, who does not appear in the inquiry report. This is Neil Ritchie, an MI6 officer with the cover of being Lord Elport's first secretary. At the time of Hammerschultz's death, 
Richie was on a secret mission at Indola. It was he who brought Shombi and his advisors to Indola from Kapushi on the border, where they were hiding on the border with the Congo, where they were hiding from the UN. Richie got officials of the Union Miniere, the big Belgian multinational in the region, which had strong links to the British company, Tanganyika Confessions, to steamroller the airstrip at Kapushi. There is a set of telegrams in the Brussels State Archive <coughs> showing that Ritchie was in constant contact with Union Miniere and the multinationals in Rhodesia. Hamschultz was not popular with MI6, and certainly not with George Kennedy Young, the deputy director of MI6 from 1958 until late 1961. Hamschultz was quite blatantly, wrote Young to a right-wing MP, relying on India, Egypt, and the group of Afro-Asian countries who always lead the hue and cry against European interests wherever they are. He feared that the Secretary General was, quote, blandly giving way to the clear intent of Nehru and of Dayal, an Indian who was at that time Hamishalt special representative in the Congo, in order to crush Chombi. <coughs> the main obstacle to carrying out their plan, he believed, are the European cadres of Chombi's forces, that's the mercenaries, so that in following the letter of the UNO resolution, we are lending ourselves to the, to the destruction of the only stable part of the Congo and will bring the tide of chaos lashing against the frontiers of British Central Africa. Who else was at Indola Airport that night who does not appear in the, in the official report? I have mentioned the US air attaché from Leopoldville who arrived on the day after the crash, but there was also a high-profile American at Indola on the night of the crash. This man was Colonel Don Gaylor, the U.S. air attaché stationed in Pretoria in 1961, who was sent to Indola on 15 September by the U.S. State Department to be available to help Hammarskjöld at Indola if he needed to be flown anywhere. But why was he sent two days before the arrangements for the meeting in Indola had even apparently been thought of? He has recorded in his memoir that he was in and out of the air traffic control tower all evening and that next morning he went up at dawn in his DC-3 and found the wreckage. But none of this, not even his presence, is recorded in the reports of the official inquiries. Also at the airport were a number of people belonging to a group that Dad Hammarskjöld loathed, mercenaries, who loathed him back. He had pushed through a UN resolution to rid, to rid Katanga of white mercenaries and also an operation called Rumpunch to expel them. There was a further UN operation called Morthor, which started just as Hammarskjöld arrived in the Congo in September 1961. And, I must say, that there has been much debate, especially in Sweden, over whether or not he authorised it. This is linked often to the question of blame for his death. I consider that myself that this is a side issue. Well, the mercenaries who were at the airport include the pilots and aerial navigators, Jerry Purin, Max Glasspole and Sandor Sputnik Gurkit. These men had a record of bombing villages opposing Chombi by dropping bombs through holes in Dove aircraft. And in fact, a Dove was found at Indola Airport on the day after the crash. Also at the airport were Carlos Hoiger and Dick Brown, who both worked in a mercenary recruitment agency based in Johannesburg, and which recruited, in fact, Jerry Brown. William Richard Dick Brown was also the brother of the Tory MP for Torrington, Percy Brown, which caused some embarrassment in conservative circles in England, although in fact he had repeated great write-ups in the Daily Mail. 
Carlos Huyga was a Belgian chef de cabinet <coughs> to the Katanga Minister of Defence and was said to be close to Chombi. Huyga was being investigated in 1961, at the time he was at Ndola Airport, by the UN on suspicion of complicity in the murder of Patrice Lumumba. And this complicity has been confirmed in 2001 by the Belgian Parliamentary Commission of Inquiry into Lumumba's death. None of these men appear in the official inquiry report, but they are important because they were on the front line, the battle line, of the war between the white supremacists of the region and the African nationalists. And they absolutely hated Hammerschult and everything he stood for. I interviewed the notorious French mercenary Roger Falk in Nice. Falk went to Katanga after Algeria, and he made it clear that he was unreservedly bitter and contemptuous when he thought of Hammerschult in the UN. He had, if you like, an emotional sense of having fought a just war against them, something he was very proud of. I should like to draw your attention to the sharp contrast between the reality of Indola Airport on 17 September 1961, the night when Hammerschult um, crashed, with the picture given by Lord Elport, the British High Commissioner, which was, the airport was quiet, with little going on. But the mercenary Jerry Purin described it differently <coughs> in his memoir. He said, The South African Airways flight from Johannesburg put me down at Indola Airport in northern Rhodesia at 1600 hours on September 17. My first impression <coughs> was that the whole Katangese government had come to the northern Rhodesian air airfield to greet me. Shombi and his entourage were in town. So were a host of UN officials, scores of officers of Rhodesian Federal Forces, and even a few well-known and unwanted mercenary faces, people like Dick Brown and Carlos Huygens. <coughs> At the centre of the action, I found my old friends Glasspole and Gurkit. Ensconced in the airport lounge, they were swapping notes with a wide circle of Katangese and Federal officials as I strode through customs and toward them. We greeted each other like long-lost friends. Here, I would like to draw some attention to one white Rhodesian at Indola Airport that night in the bar. This was Dr. Mark Lowenthal, who looked after Harold Julian, the one person on Hammerschel's plane to be found alive after the crash, according to official sources, but who died a few days later. Lowenthal is a very sympathetic character in this ghastly story. He insisted on giving evidence to support Julian's clear testimony that the plane blew up before it crashed. Julian's testimony was discounted by the authorities on the ground that he was sedated and delirious. But his doctor, Mark Lowenthal, spoke as a volunteer witness, stating clearly that Julian was in his full mental faculties. On the night of the crash, about 30 members of the press, both local and international, had been travelling in a pack from Indola to Elizabethville, the capital of Katanga. En route, they stopped for lunch and strung a shortwave radio aerial around a small tree, and to their astonishment, they heard on a news broadcast that the UN Secretary-General was flying from the Congo to Angola in a bid to end the fighting between Katanga and UN forces. The journalists promptly turned round to go back to Indola and made for the airport. If Hammerschultz's flight to northern Rhodesia was supposed to be a secret, it was one that everybody seemed to be in on. But no reporters were allowed within the airport perimeter. We were not allowed near the airport buildings, records the Guardian correspondent and there were no news conferences that evening. Nobody was deputed as press liaison. Lord Elport was determined to keep the press away. He reported to London, we moved a couple of 10-ton police lorries in front of the airport building to screen it from the inquisitive gaze of the press and public. 
and he sent the press to a town some distance away on what one journalist later called a wild goose chase. Influencing the press was crucial for the multinationals and the Western governments in order to influence popular perception of Hammarskjöld and the UN. Huge amounts of money were paid by the Katanga lobby in the UK to journalists and publicists, publicists who successfully managed to create a perception in many circles in America and Europe that Chomby was a great man and that Hammarskjöld was not to be trusted. Earlier in this talk, I referred to the Australian artist Sidney Nolan and his wife, who visited Indola in 1963. <coughs> Nolan was deeply shocked by what he found at the crash site, exclaiming, Can you believe it? They've had the place burned out. Then the Rhodesian official who was accompanying them said, Every piece of the aeroplane has been destroyed, and what couldn't be destroyed, buried. Every nut and bolt, you won't find anything about. And the curator of the crash site gave me a similar account. Um, in 2009. All the trees in the vicinity were cut down afterwards, he said, which some people suspected was to conceal the evidence of bullet holes in the trees which had been seen. And in fact, many pieces of the aeroplane remained. Oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot to show you Dick Brown. There's uh, Mercenary Dick Brown's UN um, interrogation report with a picture of him. And here is. Um, <coughs> Rhodesian authorities um, locking the evidence of the, uh, the last pieces of the aeroplane away in a hangar. By locking this evidence away, Rhodesians appear to have hoped they were closing down the whole subject altogether. They also influenced influence and constrained the process of the UN inquiry. But the tragic story of the crash and its victims has not gone away. It is time, as my book argues, for a fresh, full inquiry, and this time properly conducted. The world today is dramatically different from 1961. The Cold War came to an end in 1989. European decolonization has been completed. White minority rule has ended in Zimbabwe and South Africa. And multinational interests in the region have changed very substantially. For all these reasons, the pressures to conceal what happened to Dow Hammarskjöld are much less potent. Moreover, a mass of relevant documentary material has come to light and continues to do so as the response to the publication of my book has shown. For example, a photograph has just emerged over the last month of one of the victims showing a bullet hole in his leg. This raises all over again the issue of bullets in the bodies and what caused them. Did they go through the barrel of a gun? I'll show this photograph since it doesn't give the identity of the victim, but you may want to look away if you don't like grizzly things. And you can see the um, bullet hole in the thigh. Now is the right time to launch a new inquiry, examining all the evidence, and it needs to be conducted urgently while the remaining witnesses are still alive. One of the people who was pressing very strongly for a new inquiry was Knut Hammarskjöld, the nephew of Doug Hammarskjöld, and Knut went to Indola um, just after um, Hammarskjöld's plane had crashed in order to represent the family, and he was horrified by the behaviour of the Rhodesian authorities he found that there were anomalies in their behaviour. Things just didn't add up, and he was very suspicious of, of details and the overall um, behaviour towards him. Unfortunately, he's just died. But the former Archbishop of Sweden, Dr K.G. Hammer, has taken up the baton, and he is spearheading a new inquiry. He went to Zambia last month to speak to witnesses in Zambia. 
witnesses Johnny Ngongo and Sefeli Mulenga, and um, he asked them what they could tell him about what had happened that night, and they gave him um, their testimony. And one of the men, in fact, said that he was he was so grateful to have, have finally the chance to tell somebody um, who wanted to know what had happened that night. He felt he could now die peacefully. And um, Zambians were very, very interested indeed that um, K.G. Hammer had come with his interest. And here you see him being interviewed um, at Indola Airport. You can see in the left-hand corner, Welcome to Indola, by um, journalists from um, Zambian, Zambian um, television. And K.G. Hammer has just written a letter which um, has been sent to both The Guardian and the Swedish newspaper, Svenska Dagbladet. And I'd like to end with just um, um, some brief excerpts from this letter. <coughs> he starts, I am convinced Dark Hammerschultz did not die in an air accident 51 years ago. He was murdered. He goes on to ask, where were the witnesses I spoke to in December in the investigations conducted by the commissions back in 1961 to 1962? Either they did not dare to come forward or they were accused of having political motives for giving their witness statements or were disregarded because of the time they gave at which the um, crash had taken place. Since independence in 1964, he said, they all now have freedom of speech and values as humans, and their statements have in Zambia now <coughs> taken priority over the, doctored, over the doctored evidence from the colonial times, concealing self-evident facts, that they succeeded in killing Hammerschultz and have got away with making the world believe in their falsified evidence. And then he, he adds, Not at least the Zambians to whom I spoke during my visit are surprised by the Swedish disinterest. Shall we as Swedes really allow the Rhodesian apartheid, the Rhodesian apartheid regime to write Swedish history? Is it of no importance to us that the families of the dead pilots have wrongly been carrying the burden of blame? The UN promised in 1962 to authorize a new commission if new facts were put on the table. And we are there now. And he ends this article by saying, Swedish Foreign Minister Carl Bildt, you were in Indola on September 18 last year, and you surely heard parts of the witness statements just as I did. Demand that the UN authorise a new commission and that all the parties that have been involved now put the relevant information on the table. Welcome back. Uh, an extensive lecture on the circumstances surrounding the death of uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, the former United Nations Secretary General, in late uh, 1961. Uh, the crash took place in uh, the then uh, northern Rhodesia, now Zambia, uh, near the town of Ndola. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. For Sunday, uh, May 29th, uh, 2022, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. This is our second edition of the Africa Liberation Weekend series. And uh, right now we want to play some excerpts uh, from a rare uh, audio uh, documentary on the Bay of Pigs incident uh, where the attempt to overthrow uh, the Cuban government uh, two and a half years after the Revolution. Uh, this took place in April of 1961. Uh, let's listen in. April 1761. 
the Bay of Pigs. In the years since he took power, Fidel Castro has become an enemy of the United States. In the eyes of Washington, a threat to United States security in the Caribbean. A plan of action against him is drawn up. March 17, 1960. CIA chief Alan Dulles is told secretly, organize a Cuban exile force. He is not told how the force is to be used. He is only told, get it ready. In Miami, recruiting for an exile army has begun. The operation is supposed to be secret, but word of what is happening quickly leaks out. Six weeks after the secret meeting at the White House, Fidel Castro has publicly charged that the United States is training an army to invade Cuba. Meanwhile in Miami, there are 50 exile groups of every political hue, from former supporters of Batista to former supporters of Castro. They have only one thing in common. They want to overthrow Fidel. The CIA's problem is to find a way to unify them. The announcement of the formation of the Frente does not receive the expected attention. The summer of 1960 is a bad time for the United States. Other events occupy the headlines. A U-2 shot down over the Soviet Union. Nikita Khrushchev in Paris insulting the President of the United States, wrecking the summit conference. It is at this moment that the Soviet tanker Peking slips quietly into Havana Harbor, carrying a cargo of crude oil that will set off a chain reaction. Castro orders Texaco, Shell, and Esso plants in Cuba to refine the Soviet oil. They refuse, and Castro seizes the refineries. He offers no reparations. Over angry Cuban protests, the United States retaliates by cutting off its imports of Cuban sugar. Castro seizes more United States property. Now in the summer of 1960, the United States and Cuba have reached the point of no return. In Washington, the Eisenhower administration is now convinced it is in the United States national interest to get rid of Fidel Castro. At this moment in Guatemala, a Cuban exile army is being created by the CIA. A Cuban exile air force with B-26 bombers. They are the instruments with which the CIA plans to overthrow Fidel Castro. Havana, summer 1960. Fidel Castro admits publicly for the first time there is unrest inside Cuba, counter-revolutionary activity. Among his opponents now is his former Minister of Public Works, Manuel Rai, leader of the MRP. The MRP was highly organized and well extended over the whole country. 
Our organization reached almost every section of the Cuban life. Civic institutions, professional organizations, labor unions, the militia, the army, and we have people inside of Fidel Castro's office. The MRP operates in the cities. It's an underground movement specializing in sabotage. In the Escombray Mountains is another anti-Castro force, the guerrillas. In September 1960, it has become a serious threat to Fidel Castro. He comes to the Escombray to take personal command of the military operation. But resistance continues. Late in September, Castro leaves the Escombray and comes to New York. He is an uninvited guest. He will attend the UN General Assembly. While he is in New York, he sees his new ally, Nikita Khrushchev. The date is September 26, 1960. Castro will tell the General Assembly the United States is seeking to overthrow him, is training an army to invade his country, is interfering in Cuba's internal affairs. A few weeks later, the Democratic candidate for president is in New York campaigning. He issues a statement in which he says the United States is not doing enough for the Cuban exiles. He says the United States ought to help them. In their television debate, Vice President Nixon disagrees. Now, I don't know what Senator Kennedy suggests when he says that we should help those who oppose the Castro regime, both in Cuba and without. But I do know this, that if we were to follow that recommendation, that we would lose all of our friends in Latin America, we would probably be condemned in the United Nations, and we would not accomplish our objective. I know something else. It would be an open invitation for Mr. Khrushchev to come in. As the votes are counted on November 8th, it is clear that a key issue has been who knows best how to handle Castro. It is the closest presidential election in United States history. But uh, we finally emerged successfully. Now, as far as the next uh, program, I went to the country with very clear views of what the United States ought to do in the 60s. I have been elected and uh, therefore I'm going to do my best to implement those views. Even as the president-elect speaks, in Guatemala, the force that he has called for in his campaign, the force that Nixon has denied exists, that Eisenhower has created, that Castro has denounced, is getting trained and ready. In Cuba, meanwhile, Castro is sending his best troops into the Escambray to destroy the guerrillas, now cut off from arms and supplies. Thousands of Fidel's militiamen began an offensive against us. They moved out the farmers, killed the cows, pigs, and chickens, cut down the fruit trees, burned the houses, took away the food. In view of this and the lack of help, we had to flee the island. The revolt is crushed. Castro has eliminated one threat to his survival. 
1960 ends, he goes on television to warn the Cuban people about another. He says the United States is preparing to invade Cuba. The invasion will come before Eisenhower leaves office. He calls for a general mobilization. The United States and Cuba break diplomatic relations. Tension mounts. The moment of armed confrontation between Cuba and the United States is near. January 20th, 1961. So let us begin anew. Remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. For a moment, there is a breathing spell in relations between the United States and Cuba a break in the tension that has been mounting for six months. In Havana, the militia is demobilized. The milicianos are sent back to the field. The leaders join them to harvest the crops. But in Washington, Cuba has not been forgotten. In his campaign, the new president has promised to do something about Cuba. Now he must decide what to do. But his advisors are new and inexperienced. He must rely on the professionals for military advice on General Lemnitzer and the Joint Chiefs, on the CIA, which is handling the Cuban problem, political and military aspects, as well as intelligence. CIA Director Alan Dulles briefed the president on the Cuban situation. He told the president the details of the invasion plan known by the code name of Operation Pluto. At that point, the landing was to be made at Trinidad on the Cuban coast 100 miles east of the Bay of Pigs. The United States was to supply air cover. As time went on, both of these parts of the plan were to be changed with the approval or at least the acquiescence of the CIA and the Pentagon. But at this point, Dulles simply wanted an okay from the president to continue preparations. He got it. From this date on, Operation Pluto gets top priority from the CIA. The CIA tells the Cuban exiles they must agree on a single leader if they want United States help. The Cubans choose Dr. Jose Miro Cardona. Once Castro's prime minister, Dr. Miro has remained neutral in the power struggle among the exile leaders. Now he comes to New York to become head of the anti-Castro Cubans. At his press conference, Dr. Miro speaks for the first time as president of the new Revolutionary Council. Now the Cubans are united. The MRP has joined the new coalition reluctantly. They don't like the way the CIA is dominating the operation. But they assume United States participation assures the operation's success. They don't want to be left out of any new Cuban government. And the anti-Castro Cuban leaders feel they have reached a satisfactory understanding with the CIA. At this moment in Washington, the president is under heavy pressure. He is being pressed to okay the invasion plan. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from uh, the documentary dealing with the early phase of uh, U.S.-Cuban relations. Uh, just uh, two years after the Cuban Revolution. 
And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today, uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And, uh, of course, uh, if you want to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you want to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out, of course, uh, with the music of the legendary John Coltrane from the album entitled Expressions. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. (laughs) 